0: This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news and media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz.
1: And I'm Alex Entner. Summer movie season is upon us, and if you've been following the media news recently, there, there's been a lot of talk about it and what some of these news stories that are coming out of it mean for the general state of the film industry. So we thought we'd use the summer as a lens to kind of take a look and do a bit of a state of the film industry, similar to how we've done the state of theater, and pretty much every week do the state of TV. So, Amanda, what are we going to be getting at this week?
0: Well, I pulled together some comments drawn very much from a report that Variety put out at the end of 2015. Uh, a thought leader white paper called Disruption in the Movie Business. And I think that gives us a lot of things to talk about, as well as a report from Movio uh, that in many ways illustrates many of the points from the Variety article about how the film business might be changing and and how it might not be.
1: So, kind of the first question that we're going to get at involves sequels and spin-offs. A lot of the news this summer has been centered around these movies. And how they're not doing nearly as well as they have been before. We have many sequels just coming right out of the gate and, quite frankly, bombing. Alice in Wonderland, Through the Looking Glass, didn't do nearly as well. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 just totally and completely is going to make significantly less money than past iterations. X-Men Apocalypse... Now you see me too. Independence Day resurgence have not met what the studios were expecting of them when they put together these big budget movies. So let, let's start with that question. You know, why is this happening?
0: Right. So many podcasts go now, it seems, uh, we had a long conversation about why there are sequels in the first place, especially what seems like an abundance or a glut of them. And we talked about it. As a strategy in in any media industry, one small effort to sort of have some sense of how something might do is to stick with a known product of some sort. I think if we were doing this podcast a different summer, we would be talking about how all the sequels were smash hits.
1: Like if we were doing it last summer where there was Avengers Age of Ultron and Jurassic World.
0: Thank you, Alex. That's why you're here. Um, Yes, exactly. Those things. Uh, So I think in some ways... I think it might be premature to chalk too much up to this being some sort of problem with sequels. And I think we really have to, as our film critics need to, which is not really what I do, but take a look at the content and, and really question whether or not these were good executions of the
1: films. Which I've I've only, of the sequels I mentioned, I've seen Only seen Now You See Me 2, which was slightly worse than the first one, but that's not saying much. The first one wasn't great. But I think the question can really be answered by what sequels have done well this summer. And we have Captain America, Civil War, and Finding Dory. They, they have both been smash hits. And the, the connection between the two, those are the ones that were well-reviewed. Those are the ones that were well-thought-of by fans. Those were the ones that... You know, had the qualitative backing and were able to build buzz. Like we don't even know how high Dory is going to go before before it tapers off. Like Dory is on pretty much at two hundred million right now, so it it really does seem to be a question of the sequels that are breaking through, are the ones that are doing well creatively and had a real creative reason to exist.
0: Right, and I so I think that's an important thing to to keep in mind, and and so certainly. Going with a known property, that, that's a tool. It's a strategy for guessing what the box office might support. But if you, if you pick the wrong one, if you pick a story that nobody really wants to see extended uh, or nobody wants to revisit and or you don't do it well, then it's by no means a bulletproof strategy.
1: Right, I and mean, with Alice Through the Looking Glass, it was wait they waited six years between making the two movies, and there just didn't seem to be any interest from even fans of the first one. That first movie made over three hundred million domestically. This one, I'm not, I don't even think it's going to reach hundred and fifty. Maybe not even a hundred million domestically.
0: So I was away at a conference last week and saw a scholar who's been studying the phenomenon of spin-offs and sequels. Uh, so the whole conference was about seriality or the extension of storytelling in, in all sorts of media. And in this particular rather exhaustive research, uh, the scholar, her name's Kathleen Locke, she's from Berlin, And she's gone through and developed this enormous database going back to the beginning of film in the 1800s and keeping count of how many sequels were produced in any given year Uh, and then indexed that against how many films were produced so that you could really sort of see as a percentage of of, of overall annual production. And her findings were really interesting because they defy what I think and what she noted they defy what a lot of people think as far as the conventional wisdom is that we're in this moment of so many sequels. And in fact, um, in, relative to the historical data, we're not so abundant. Basically, less than 6% of the films made in the 2000s were some sort of series, a spinoff, a sequel. And that compares with 16% in the 1980s, the sort of Day of of Rocky and Lethal Weapon movies, Um, but even in the 1940s, the percentage was as high as 19%. I
1: I think that's a really interesting stat. Um, I I wonder how it would break down between big-budget movies and independent films, because I, I wonder if we've seen an increase in independent films in the past few decades, even more so than, say, in the 80s. And I wonder if that could have to do with the percentages being so low because you see a lot of a lot of the big budget movies coming out this summer are sequels and a lot Certainly. of what you would consider to be the summer blockbusters are sequels. And right
0: that's, that's exactly, I didn't get a chance to talk with her, but that was along the line of question that I had was whether there was a way within her data to sort of pull apart different types of movies because I was also remembering back to the 1980s and the many different Chucky movies and, you know, some of those, I don't know if we'd call them B movies, um, but they, they're very different from the mainstream um, theatrical blockbuster type releases. And so it would be interesting to also have that data point of, of different caliber of films.
1: So now let's go into the state of the, the disruption of the movie business, the state of film article from Variety. So what what trends did you pick pick up on when reading this story?
0: Well, I think it's hard to see trends and that's the thing is sort of every you could do this report and, and Variety probably does it every year and, and it looks a little bit different. Now, in many ways 2015 was a somewhat odd year. It was the box office was was really dominated by just two studios, Disney and Universal. Uh, between the two of them they had forty one percent of the US market share and more than a third of global grosses. As well as seven of the top ten grossing films. And that was the first time that had happened in twenty years. But I think, you know, you're right on in sort of asking about trends because I think that's the bigger picture that's important because it just depends so much on what a studio's slate looks like. And that may have just been a one-year anomaly and it, we'd Something know a like lot un- more. Something like
1: Universal isn't going to have a Jurassic World and a train wreck on, or a Fat Furious 7 and some on their schedule every year. Right. And some minions, right.
0: And so it, it certainly looks to be the case that Disney is in a, a pretty solid position given their wide range of, of intellectual property that they
1: own. And this year, you know, they had the end of Star Wars, um, like the end of Star, pretty much mm-hmm. all of Star Wars' run happened in 2016. They had Zootopia, which was a massive hit, Captain America, Civil War, Finding Dory. They're, they're doing pretty well, where Universal, they haven't had quite the... The punch to this year's box office. Probably the the example that's coming to mind is Popstar. Never stop, never stopping. (laughs) Great movie. Nobody went out to see it.
0: So I think that is a a point we'll have to look at 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 the end of the year, whether it sort of returns to more equilibrium across a number of studios or whether we really do see uh, certain studios that really... And we're we're saying two different. We're saying two really contradictory things here. Though we're talking about Disney's strength being connected to all their intellectual property. Although we just said that none of the sequels are working. So
1: yeah, and it's interesting because the two sequels that we we pointed out were working were Disney, and even though through the Looking Glass, that's also a Disney sequel that didn't do nearly as well.
0: So. The main focus of the State of the Film piece, though, was looking at changes in distribution. And as we've talked about in in other forms of media, this is the the big crisis in, in just about any form of media. And so one of the big news stories toward the end of 2015 was the emergence of this company or service called Screening Room, uh, which have we talked about that already?
1: I, I Maybe we've mentioned it, but I don't think we've devoted a whole portion like we are now to it.
0: Right. So it's, it's nothing that really exists yet. Um, it's just
1: an idea that some that some people are investing in and some people are trying to get off the ground.
0: Right. And it's not just some people. It's Sean Fanning of, of Napster fame. And oh, so right. um, the, it, it's not just out of left field, um, basically the service that Screening Room is purporting to offer is day and date release of major theatrical films for $50 a screening. And at this point, we've seen a lot of coverage in the trades, the pro- a long list of producers who hate it and why they think this will be terrible, basically you know, ideas that come back to the importance of seeing film in the theater, the sanctity of the theatrical experience. Exhibitors also obviously hate it because they're the ones whose theaters people won't be filling up.
1: And it's interesting because AMC has been rumored. AMC theaters have been rumored to be have invested in the service.
0: Oh, I hadn't heard, read that. And, but I think in many ways both of those groups are a bit out of touch with most of America, because to me the the, the jaw dropping aspect of Screening Room is. I I just can't believe there's a market there that's willing to pay $50 for day and date release.
1: Although for one person or two people, that might not be worth it. But for a family of four going to the theater, you're looking at $40 just for the tickets. And then you throw in food and other expenses that could come up from going to the movie theater. And that's, that's why that $50 price point might be valuable to maybe a family or something like that.
0: That's true, but I, I think, coming back to why the producers hate it, that, you know, the experience of watching a film at home is so different. and
1: I, I think I agree with you completely. Movie theaters are a space to— I, I go to see as many movies in theaters as I can just because I like the experience, but I also have friends who never go because they, you know, don't want the inconvenience of having to go to a theater and maybe sit in uncomfortable seats. So while well, it breaks my heart to say it, you know, if this, if this happens, it might actually be something.
0: But I think what it points to that is worth definitely keeping an eye on is a recognition and a need for alternatives to theater going for for a variety of reasons. And it's clear that digital distribution is going to have consequences for film distribution, just like it has had for every other industry. And it's on the studios to, to not wait too long. I have some data later in the, the podcast, uh, I think, that reveals the fact that the industry isn't, isn't sitting still, but I think in, when we look at this industry, unlike some of the others, the very different interests of the studios, who also distribute for the most part the films, and the exhibitors uh, are, are really the way in which those two entities, it will be difficult to come up with solutions to the situation that are going to service both of those.:
1: And we, we've had conflicts this even in the past year with certain movies like Beasts of No Nation. When that came out, major exhibitors wouldn't show it because it was going to be on Netflix day and date. And so we've had conflicts between these these studios and the exhibitors because the exhibitors wanted all to, want the movies all to themselves. They don't want anybody else coming in and they don't want anybody else coming in and screening the films. They don't want moviegoers to have other ways to see the movies that are coming.
0: Right, And some of this goes to some of the data that comes out in, in the Variety Report, I think, reveals where this is coming from. And that has to do with who goes to see movies and what populations are keeping the movie industry afloat. Frequent moviegoers, which Variety defines as those who go to see a movie once a month or more, represented 11% of total U.S. and Canadian movie population, but... That 11% accounted for 51% of tickets that were sold in 2014. (sighs) Right. So when we talk about, or I think when films get talked about, it's very typically uh, this notion of the four quadrants. Right. uh, Male and female, and above 25 and below 25. Right. Where, in fact, the frequent movie-going population, and sort of knowing as much as you can about that population, is really key to maintaining the exhibition run of films
1: because you've got to know who's going to the movies so you can program for that and that's the idea you're getting at, and right? they're
0: they're the group that's going to keep going right and so it's almost like thinking about when you you create this creative product you create this film and you have this Mere eleven percent—that's—that's that's actually likely to see it in a film right. In theater, right? Um, and so recognizing that maybe you know, different strategies are needed, uh, and the Movio report that I'll talk about in a minute sort of gets to some of that.
1: And you know, I, I think it's interesting because you, you often hear the, about the, the movies that do well or the movies that bring in the audience who isn't among that eleven percent. You know, you look at something like Finding Dory—that's a movie that's bringing in everyone, young to old—and male to female, and that's why that movie is doing well, is because it's appealing to, as you put it, the four quadrants. And
0: Star Wars before that. What the Variety Report also shows is a shortening of distribution windows, that time between when a movie's available in a theater and when it's available on DVD. And so in 2015, that window was only about three and a half months. Uh, And that compares with four and three quarters months in 2010, five months in 2005, And six, back in the heyday of video rental around the year 2000.
1: What interests me is what this represents in terms of movie studios trying to get movies in the homes as soon as possible in a way that doesn't piss off their exhibitor partners.
0: Right, and this is the real challenge. And from the studio side of things one of the advantages to shortening that window is decreasing the amount of promotion that you have to do. And so as long as it's more fresh in the mind of audiences and maybe, you know, maybe you see something advertised and think, oh, that looks good, but I'm not going to go see it in the movie theater. I'll wait until...
1: Exactly. Video. Or on demand, video on demand. Or, right.
0: And so all of these are. I think we do see evidence in something like the shift in that number that the studios are responding, and they're, you know, they're somewhat trapped um, in terms of working with their uh, exhibitor partners. That, because
1: the exhibitor partners don't like change.
0: Well, right now we're talking about change meaning being the eroding of their business. So of right. course they're not going to like that. Um, but yeah, they're very different interests here.
1: Well, let's also talk a little bit about how. We, we've talked a little bit about how um, SVOD services are changing the game in movie distribution as well. Like Netflix and Amazon. I mentioned Beast of Donation earlier and how Netflix is trying to do day and date releases with even a small amount of theaters, as many as they can. And Amazon has actually gone about it a little differently. With Chirac they put the movie out in theaters before they put it on Amazon. So they actually did give it an abbreviated but exclusive theatrical window.
0: Right. And so, you know, there you see the film being made available for that movie-going population to consider seeing the film in that kind of a context. But also this recognition that, you know, in both Amazon and Netflix, these are services that are built on creating a library. And especially in the case of these films that they're buying, A fairly substantial distribution window of time. The expectation isn't necessarily that people see it all right away, but that it adds value to their library because it's there um, when, you know, maybe word of mouth eventually, you know, after award season or later on, uh, or it comes up through a recommendation engine. And these are all very different ways of viewers finding content uh, that I think are important to understand how different these distribution windows are compared to the ones that we've seen being very driven by time in, in the past.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Let, let's move a bit into the Movio article um, with the study of film-going patterns. So Amanda, what trends have you noticed going into that?
0: One of the things that the Movio study is looking at is that the phenomenon of the four quadrants that we talked about but what they're able to do is, again, we've sort of this beginning of a use of what we might casually call big data. The way in which they were able to analyze their data, they were able to recognize that there was significant variation in audience patterns. And what they hope to do um, is sort of suggest the way in which different marketing decisions might be valuable uh, by taking that kind of information into account.
1: So they're looking at audience information and trying to use it in how the movies are marketed.
0: Right. And so that's actually another final good point that came out of the variety study and sort of looking forward, um, recognizing that there are new opportunities in data mining for both the studios and the exhibitors. I mean, um,
1: it's sim- isn't it pretty similar to the ideas that Netflix and Amazon get out with their recommendation engines?
0: Somewhat. And I think it's more about knowing who the moviegoers are and then targeting the marketing more precisely. Okay. I mean we have to remember that if 5 million is production cost then there's often at least another 5 million of promotion cost.
1: Right. And so, and so like his... you, you hear and studios only get a certain chunk of the box office. Exhibitors take usually it's half, sometimes a little bit less on a big budget film. So you hear something like Independence Day Resurgence is going to need to make 400 million worldwide to even become solvent.
0: Right. And so right now, or historically, the way that films have been marketed, there's a lot of there's a lot of waste. A lot of eyeballs are purchased of people who are never going to go see a film, let alone that particular film. So what things like pre-sales and loyalty cards do is it allows the exhibitors or, for the most part, the exhibitors to know more about who it is that goes to see different movies and then targeting them directly.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, you, you don't necessarily think that, you know, me oh, having an AMC Stubbs card, they're using it to track the movies I see and the movies my family sees and everything like that. And I guess that's one way to get at the idea of who's actually going to see the movies.
0: Right. And then as well, much more targeted marketing. So if you have a new kids movie coming out and you know that this particular uh, loyalty card member... You know, they they're not a frequent film goer, but they
1: They will you know, go see the family movies. Right.
0: And so targeting them directly instead of, you know, trying to advertise in a bunch of T V shows maybe they'll see. Right. So basically we're looking at using data to help eliminate some of the waste of, of marketing costs.
1: Because marketing costs are very high. Are
0: as high as the production, right. So in the Movio study, basically they saw a pattern with Star Wars that sort of the young, male-targeted, frequent moviegoers, um, they dropped off sort of after the first initial weekend. Really? Whereas other groups, female audiences, older audiences, um, they
1: tended to go and see it later. And that's probably why it had such a long run in theaters.
0: Right. And so instead of all of the marketing being focused on sort of treating all those quadrants as the same... What they're sort of looking at, and, and then after they saw the pattern with Star Wars, they took a look at a number of other blockbusters, um, whether they they looked at female-targeted blockbusters, male-targeted blockbusters, and sort of and gender-neutral or he- ones. Or
1: everybody-targeted Right,
0: exactly. And did see the same kind of pattern. And so their, their takeaway was that there there really were different strategies that the studios could take on. In the case where there's bad word of mouth and that the critics are pretty negative. I mean, in that case they a studio really wants to just push the marketing as hard as they can. They
1: just at, want to get that opening audience in before Well, word and specifically of mouth
0: can specifically spending their money in places where young men are going to see it because they are the most likely quadrant to, to go show up opening weekend. Open, opening weekend right. Um, however, if you do have a, a movie that is getting good word of mouth, good critical review, then pivoting those ad dollars, putting them in places where um, women are more likely to see them and older audiences that are still in the game to go see that movie hmm. um, rather than just continuing to target that one demographic.
1: You know, I wonder looking, like, looking at a movie like Batman v. Superman... You know, that movie was hugely front-loaded in its box office gross, and I wonder if that was a trend, you know, they saw the word of mouth was getting a bit more negative, so they just pummeled people, pummeled people, pummeled people to get filmgoers like me, they, they got me in opening weekend, I'm sorry to say, to actually go in and see that movie.
0: Right. So I think in this moment, before we really know how a creative industry, any creative industry, in this case, the film industry, is going to use the new data that's available and the new ways of analyzing I data.
1: Think they don't even know what to do with the data they have that's available.
0: Probably not. But I think a lot of the conversation has been sort of concern about how you know, our... Are we going to start using like really formulaic ways of making films, um, you know, all of this based on focus groups and audience research? Now, I think it's important to recognize that, that the new amount that can be known in this industry in which nobody knows is not just about crafting the creative goods, but also making the marketing and the promotion much more targeted, perhaps much more efficient.
1: So not only knowing the creative good, but knowing who's going to see that creative good.
0: Absolutely. And certainly in an environment in in which there are so many different forms of media competing for audience attention... Know, being able to be smarter in in reaching out and finding audiences who are actually likely to like and want to see the content as opposed to just sort of these kind of wallpaper approach to marketing you know that's just pushing the same thing to everyone
1: now it, it is summer so let let let's talk about a little bit about the movie calendar in and of itself so summer you know it used to be the time where people would go to see movies we would have A big period from May 1 to about mid-August where that would be where movie studios put their biggest movies. And that would be where movie studios pushed audiences to actually go. But recently we're seeing a trend with the movie calendar becoming more year-round. We're seeing movie studios releasing films kind of outside of that window. We have, you know, Deadpool coming out in February. We've had a few major releases from the Divergent series to Batman v Superman to The Hunger Games coming out in March. We have people going in October, November, going to see these big movies. So my, my question to you is, is the movie calendar becoming more year-round?
0: Well, I haven't seen a sort of sophisticated analysis. I mean, and again, you'd sort of note it's it's often difficult to pull apart the cases where something like Deadpool does big numbers in the middle of winter. Well, maybe it wasn't Did ex- they think... Was it a strategic effort to put it there, or did they think it wasn't going to be nearly as successful as it was? And said, I mean,
1: usually here, January is the dumping ground for all the films you want to bury underneath all the Oscar date.
0: Right. So I think, again, coming back to this notion of a, a frequent moviegoer going to a film once a month, and I think that as a strategy sort of speaks to the the need to think about going as a more year-round opportunity. I don't have the data on this, so this is pure conjecture. Now, the degree to which things like weather affects holiday season shopping. I think we also have to look at the way something like weather affects film going. And in my tiny little study here of... uh, (laughs) southeast Michigan where we're having an uncommonly good summer so far, right? It makes sense to me that, you know, I've got two kids and they're not they're not all over me to go to the movie theater because the weather's great and we've they been able to play outside. Exactly. And you know, the first, you know, 95 degree day or, you know, once we start having some storms, maybe we'll start to see um, some shifts, and so I think one of the things that's always difficult when you're, you know, armchair quarterbacking what's going on in the industry is, is certainly we see these trends when whether it's something like a strategy like sequels, um, and so pulling apart the strategy from the execution, and then as well sort of looking at something like this: is this summer particularly weak? Well, is it summer? are people's habits changing or again is it the slate of films
1: yeah i i think you're hitting i think you hit the nail on the head right there with the ideas uh, on the movie calendar and so that's going to wrap up our discussion of the film industry as a whole so we're going to move into the last segment of each and every show what are we watching this week so amanda what are you watching this week
0: i've been on the road it's been busy in other words i haven't been watching anything um or at least that's what it feels like so there are so many things that are you know piping up to the top of the queue i've heard such great things about uh the oj simpson series that espn
1: did i that's on the top of my list as well it's
0: all i can do to hide from the spoilers and various
1: other series spoiler alert oj got off (laughs)
0: there we go yeah exactly So I don't have a good contribution, unfortunately, this week. How about you, Alex? What are you watching?
1: I've got a couple of things I want to talk about here. Um, The first is Finding Dory, which I saw opening weekend. I went to the movie theater and saw it. And there are some things about that movie that are just outright beautiful. Um, the, The movie follows Dory as she tries to find her parents and find her family. And the way that movie deals with overcoming disability and with... Dealing with, watching Dory's parents struggle with, you know, how, with the questions of, you know, how is Dory going to survive in this world when she has short-term memory loss? And, you know, Dory struggling with kind of her own, her own thoughts, her own fears. And just watching that really was beautiful. I mean, the movie did have some more, some deeper problems, but...
0: I think that, you know, I think that's a nice illustration. I haven't seen the film yet, but that doesn't sound like a... Cheap, simple knockoff. No, no, not at all. And so, and again, there's been a decade, thirteen years, thirteen years between.
1: I don't remember seeing Finding Nemo in theaters that's how young I was.
0: Right. So I think it's important to to not only, you know, think of Finding Dory as a sequel, but that's a sequel of a very different sort than really was the Disney strategy in a pre-Pixar day when really a straight-to-video sequel was was I still the remember watching strategy. Cinderella
1: 2 and The Little Mermaid 2 and Pocahontas 2, don't worry.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe not so many others though. So <laughs> So we, again, you know, all sequels are not created equally. And I think you have pointed out very nicely why this one may be performing quite well as a result.
1: Right. And I also wanted to mention Orange is New Black Season 4. I won't go into too many spoilers because okay. I don't want to ruin it for any of you and Amanda hasn't seen it yet. But there are some things that this show did that were just downright beautiful. Um, there, there were moments that just floored me. What they did this year was they built something. And they just built and built and they piled onto this massive pile of chaos. Good word, Amanda. And when that chaos hit the fan, boy, was it powerful. Like, this season just did a remarkable job. And it wasn't something I was expecting from this show this year. Because season three was was pretty good, but it, it didn't really build a story. And it didn't touch on the themes that this season did in nearly as powerful a way.
0: Wow, I look forward to seeing it.
1: All right, and that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. You can find prior episodes of our show by going on iTunes and searching Media Business Matters or by going to com and clicking on the Media Business Matters link at the top of the page. Amanda, where can our fine listeners follow you on Twitter?
0: Dr. T V Lots, that's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can also reach our mailbag at D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z at gmail.com.
1: We'll be diving into the mailbag soon in a future episode, so we hope that you guys submit questions because we love answering them. And you can follow me on Twitter at AlexIntner. That's Alex I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back soon.